end for the reading of God's Word. I'm quite, I'm quite excited to see the Bibles on the seats. Um, that means that all of you, as the talk is going on, can actually read the Word of God and follow along. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds as we read your word and that you would soften our hearts to accept your word and that you would encourage us to enact what it tells us to do. We ask this in your name. Amen. From Exodus 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I'll do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I'll free you from being slaves to them, and I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I'll take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I'll bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And I'll give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they didn't listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Moses listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanoch and Palu, Hezron and Kami. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi according to their records. Gershon, Kohath, and Merai. Merari, sorry. Levi lived 137 years. 
The sons of Gershon by clans were Libni and Shimini. The sons of Kohath were Amran, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mahali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi, according to their records. Amran married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amran lived 137 years. The sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elazphan, and Sithri. Aaron married um, Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abisaf. These were the Korahite clans. Eliezer, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. This same Moses and Aaron. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You're to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt... He will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I'll bring out my divisions, my people of the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. And Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron, 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Thanks be to God. Well, you know what's happened, friends? Where is my outline? <laughs> Anyone see a black folder? Is that it? It went missing. But friends, I need to tell you, I'm so glad to be back here speaking, uh, and I'm so glad to have my notes. <laughs> um, but let's ask God to help us as we look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means, 
and the will to put it into practice through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, dog pounds are full of them. You walk past their cages and you look at their sad, fearful eyes waiting to see whether kindness or the rod awaits them. If you come too close to them, their tails go between their legs. Some of you must have seen these signs with dogs. They flinch. Sometimes they involuntarily urinate or simply just cower in the corner. These dogs are dogs whose spirits have been broken, one way or another. And let me tell you, it's an extremely sorrowful sight. But dogs are not the only ones. Perhaps you, like me, have met humans with a broken spirit. Sometimes they've been brutalised by other humans. At other times, the life, has been, life itself has beaten them into submission. But they show many of the same signs. Their eyes are full of sadness. I've seen such people walking down streets. Life may have become colourless, hopeless, a shade of grey for them. They want to cry, but they can't. They want to yell out for help, but they're convinced that there's no one there to hear them and no one cares about them anyway. Mechanical and hopelessly, they wake, wake to each day with a feeling of dread. Some of you may have friends like this. Another day to be faced, no escape, no delivery, no rescue, no hope. Let me make it very clear, a broken spirit in a human being is a terrifying thing. And perhaps some of you have friends like this. Such people see no escape, no alternative, no light at the end of the tunnel for them. Now, with that in mind, I want you to look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. Read it with me. I've used, the, uh, in, for this particular point, the ESV version, because it make, captures it so well. L look at what it says. Moses thus spoke to the people of Israel. But they didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Can you hear what's being said? These people are so under the hammer that they've got nothing to look for. They can't even hear God speak to them anyway. And the writer of Exodus is telling us that God's words of encouragement and hope come to a people who can no longer hear. They are beyond crying out to God. They're beyond listening to God. They're bound in discouragement. They are unable to have any voice of hope come to them. There's no expectation that God will be at hand. Rather, cruel bondage, the passing of many years, has broken their spirit. With that in mind, let's remember what has happened since we last visited the book of Exodus. Um, at the end of chapter 4, Moses returns to his own people and he performs the signs that God has given him to perform. And the people believe and they bow in thanks to God when they hear that he has seen their affliction. Then in chapter 5, Moses boldly makes his first foray into the court of Pharaoh. He stands in God's place. He speaks God's word to Pharaoh, the enemy of God. But the person to whom the prophecy is directed doesn't listen and couldn't care less. 
The people being rescued don't appreciate what he is doing, that what God is doing, and God doesn't respond as expected. And the end result, the text tells us that the hardship experienced by God's people just increases. The ferocity of Pharaoh erupts into full swing. And Moses is on the receiving end from both Pharaoh and the people. He's caught in the middle. Verse 22 indicates that Moses feels hard done by from God. You can see it in his complaint against God and his words in verse 22. Have a look at verse 22. He accuses God forcefully. The general gist is that it's not so much about Pharaoh and his activity, but God and his activity or lack of activity. The Lord has not delivered is what he says or what he hears. In fact, the Lord's intervention has caused increased trouble for the people. Look at verse 22. Look at what Moses says. He says, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I've been, I went to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. I mean, would, would you ever dare to speak to God that way? <laughs> That's what Moses is doing. That is the accusation that lies behind Exodus chapter 6. But chapter 6 also forms a contrast with chapter 5. You see, where God is very absent in chapter 5, he is very present in chapter 6. Let's see what he has to say. The first thing is the constant mention of who's speaking. The words, I am the Lord, occur in verses 2, 6, 7, 8, 29, 30, and also chapter 7, verse 5. So God's spoken about lots. In verses 2 to 5, we have him telling his people that he's the Lord, he's the God of the covenant, and in verse 6 to 8, he, hear, he says this, I am the Lord your God. And I am the Lord your God who brought you out of from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Can you hear what he's saying? He's saying, I'm the God who delivers. In verse 28 and chapter 7, Verse 5, God describes himself as the Lord, the speaking and acting God. It's a magnificent response to the accusation of Moses. The Lord is the God of Israel. He is the God of covenant. He is the God of his word. He is the God of all the world. He is the one who rescues, the one who delivers. The second thing to notice is that the Lord has a goal in what he's doing. The goal is that Israel comes to know him in a way that they previously had not known him. Verses 2 to 5 tell us that previously God had made himself known to Israel in a whole different sort of way. However, they didn't quite know the heart of him, his full nature. They knew him by name, the Lord, but they didn't quite know his full nature. Now he tells them that something new is going to happen in their lives in their relationship. And he, as he acts to rescue and deliver his people, he will be the God of the Exodus. From now on, you talk about the Lord, he's the Lord of the Exodus, the delivery. 
He'll be known as the God who brought them out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, who took them to be his people, who showed himself to be their God, the Lord who gave the people the land promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. From now on, that's how you'll think of him. But let's have a look at what happens in these next few verses. Let's have a look at verses 14 to 27 and chapter 7, verses 6 to 7. Now my guess is that when you look at verse 14 to 27, you're tempted to skip over them because they're family histories. Does that represent you? You hit the genealogies and you say, oh, I'll just skim through that. <laughs> yeah, well, you're in good company. Nearly all Christians do that, I think, unfortunately. Um, but they're very important. Genealogies are very important to Jews. Let me show you. First, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron tells us they're people of good pedigree. They are descended from Jacob and Levi. Second, the verses on either side of the genealogy give us important information about them. I think it's there to let you know that they're not well equipped to be rescuers. Look at verses 10 to, 20, to 13. These men are not men to whom the Israelites have listened. What's more, Moses is not a very good speaker. I think that's what's being said here. What's, uh, um, a more literal translation tells us that he is of uncircumcised lips. <laughs> now I had trouble sort of figuring out what that would look like in my brain when I came across this passage. A more literal translation tells us that he is of, like I said, uncircumcised lips. So he's not a man you'd expect to get a hearing from Pharaoh, let alone a deliverer. We're told that Aaron is also, chapter 7, verse 7, 83 years old. Sorry, Aaron is 83 years old, Moses is 80. So let me, let me just put this to you. They're not young warriors, are they? <laughs> who are good candidates for leading a rescue attempt from one of the world's mightiest nations. No, they're, they're old men. But there's something else. Uh, as we've looked at the passage, did you notice the enormous repetition, as we had it read to us, enormous repetition of God's name. Our translation in our Bibles has the Lord. But Moses would have heard the personal name of God. Look at, listen to verses 1 to 8. In Hebrew, the eyes are contained in verbs. However, they're emphasized by a strong... I'm going to read to you what it actually sounds like, as it were. Well, I, I can tell you the Hebrew, but I'm just going to tell you one word. Here is what is said. The Lord says, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. That is, I am, if you want the Hebrew word, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by, by, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known. So what God's saying is, I'm telling you my name. And my name is my character. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. 
Moreover, I've heard the groaning of Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I, I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with acts of judgment. I will make you, take you as my own people. And I will be your God. This is full of I, isn't it? Of the I of God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land that I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you for your possession. I am the Lord. That is very loaded, isn't it? God is saying, basically, my character rests on what I'm about to do. It's a passage full of God, isn't it? Full of his initiative, his promise uh, of action. The force of it is very, very clear. God is saying, well, now let me put it another way. Israel's at their lowest point in their history here. Moses and Aaron are getting on. They're old now and they seem to not have the power to do anything. So that means you've got no hope. And you know what? When evil is at his greatest, when God's people are at their lowest, when his spokespeople are at their weakest, when there is only emptiness and void and you then and you need a whole new world created, then the Lord can be the Lord. And that's what's going to happen here. He can be the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. But at the same time, he can be the Lord who does not leave the guilty unpunished. Many years later, um, Hannah, do you remember Hannah? Hannah would know and experience this detailed in the books of Samuel. I want you to listen to what Hannah says about God, the Lord. She says this, Don't keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. This is from 1 Samuel. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him things are weighed and deeds are weighed. The bows of warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. The Lord brings death and makes life. He brings down to the grave and he raises up from the grave. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles, he exalts, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and he has them inherit a throne of honour. Can you hear what he's saying? He's saying, I can do this. Do you understand what's going on here? Here is Israel. Just crushed. And the Lord's saying, I'm made for such situations. I am able to sort this out. I am the Lord of all the earth. With that in mind, I want you to look at Uh, briefly at Exodus chapter 6. 
verses 28 through to chapter 7, verse 5. Do you remember that God had said in chapter 6, verse 7, that his goal was that Israel come to know him as the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt? We also heard that his goal was that the Egyptians will know that he's the Lord. In chapter 5, Pharaoh defiantly said, I don't know the Lord. Well, when God has finished, he will. When God has finished, he will. That's what Moses is saying. That's what God is saying here. He and all Egypt will know the Lord. I want you now to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 7 verse 5. Exodus 7 verse 5. It says, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out. Now friends, I've just skimmed through this passage today. I've tried to help you give it a feel for it. My aim has been to get us at the centre of the passage. We've been exposed to the true and living God. He's the centre. And we meet him in the sort of situation he loves. And what is or who is that? Well, he is the God who made the earth. He made the world. He's the one who made humans to live in dependence upon him. He's the one who wants human existence to be filled with him rather than us. And so when God finds a situation when his people have nowhere else to go but to him, do you know what? He's in his element. When he finds that situation, when he sees humans being dominated and oppressed and helpless, then God is in his element because he can fix it. He is Yahweh, the Lord, the helper of the helpless. He is the Lord, the one who loves to rescue the broken in spirit. He is the Lord who loves giving the kingdom of heaven to the poor in spirit. He is the one who loves comforting those who mourn, who loves causing the meek to inherit the earth, who cannot help revealing himself to the pure in heart, and who loves rescuing such people from those who persecute them. He is the Lord, the Lord, the God of grace and mercy. Now this is the God we Christians know better than all in history. Isn't it? I want you in your Bibles to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And I want you to listen to it as I read it. I want you to ask, what similarities are there between this passage and Exodus 6? God is speaking through the Apostle Paul and he says this, As for you, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the, ruler, uh, and the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. That's who you were. All of us, says Paul, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. In other words, we were totally sinful like the rest of the world. We were by nature objects of wrath. That is, we deserved only God's anger. Then the but, but, B 
because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it's by grace you see that you are saved. And God raised us up with Christ. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For, and you'll know this verse, for it's by grace you have been saved. Through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that none of us can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you spot the similarities between Exodus and Christians? Did you notice that verse 2 talks about a situation where there's a powerful enemy of God and where we are weak in bondage and of sin and the devil? We were weak, unable to save ourselves. And we hear this wonderful, marvellous words in verse 4. But God. The God who acted in Exodus is the God who inevitably will save the world. For the God, for the world and us were in bondage because of sin and the devil. We were in hopeless situations. But do you know what? Again, such situations are tailor-made for the Lord. So he sends his son into the world to do another exodus. To defeat the enemies of God. To rescue the helpless to raise us up with him and seat us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He prepared us for good works. Elsewhere, Paul will say that through these actions toward the church of God, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, what God does will be paraded for all existence. This is who God really is. Please hear what's going on here. You see, God is telling us that helplessness and weakness are situations made for God. Did you hear that? Helplessness and weakness are situations made for God. People too young or inexperienced or too old or too ungifted or whatever. People prone to self-examination or depression or not gifted or time deficient or simply lacking confidence. Now maybe you've found yourselves in those situations. The list could go on and on. But for one reason or another, have you ever found yourself in that position where you are lonely and bereft and without help and you think there's nowhere to go? Let me tell you, I have. At one point in my ministry, 
I was so debilitated with depression that I realistically began to wonder if I would ever be able to return to public ministry. I left public ministry. And that would mean for me leaving the proclamation of the word which I felt God had gifted me for. Now friends, it it may have happened differently for you, but there's this time when we experience that we are weak. That we do not have any resources within ourselves. If it hasn't happened to you, the day may come. Such situations are made for God. Not for you, but for God. For God loves the poor. He loves the needy. He loves the destitute, the depressed and the weak. For when we are weak, he can be strong. When we are afflicted and poor, we can go running to him who is strong and rich. Listen to this prayer of the great reformer, Martin Luther. I think he got it right. He prayed like this. Behold, Lord, an empty vessel that needs to be filled. My Lord, fill it. I am weak in faith. Strengthen thou me. I am cold in love. Warm me and make me fervent that my love might go out to my neighbour. I don't have a strong and firm faith. At times I doubt and and am unable to trust you altogether. Oh Lord, help me. Strengthen my faith and trust in you. In you I have sealed the treasures of all that I have. I am poor, but you are rich. And you came to be merciful to the poor. I am a sinner, but you are upright. With me there's an abundance of sin. In you there's fullness of righteousness. Therefore I will remain with you of whom I can receive. But to whom I may not give. Can you hear what he's saying? I have nowhere to go when I'm honest except to you for I can't save myself but you can save friends much I think of contemporary Christianity is infected infected by triumphalism formed and shaped by models that are not from God filled with the strong and the successful we lord them but the model in the New Testament is otherwise It gravitates around weakness and shame displayed most explicitly in the cross. Its heroes are slaves. They may be poorly dressed. They may not be in expensive hotels but buffeted and helpless, weak. But in their weakness, dependent upon him who's not weak, That's what this passage is saying. There is Israel utterly bereft of helping itself. 
Why? So that they can depend on the God who helps the helpless. In their weakness, they depend upon him who is not weak. So that God might be strong. Friends, I want you to listen to God's word. Let me just try and wrap things up a little bit. It's a word fulfilled in the cross. This story here about weakness and Israel being at the very lowest is a word fulfilled in the cross. Listen again to the words of our passage for today. I am the Lord. I have. I will. I am. I will. I am the Lord. But that's not where I want to finish. Father, come back with me to chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. And I want you to read with me what God says to Moses. He says this. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. The original language actually says it even stronger. It says, see, I've made you God to Pharaoh. <laughs> wow, that's, that's pretty potent, isn't it? You can understand what God is saying, isn't, can't you? God is telling Moses, look, under my rule, you will function like God in relation to Pharaoh. He will be in the position of God insofar, you will be in the position of God insofar as Pharaoh is concerned. Pharaoh may never see me, God, the eternal God. He may never hear me speak directly to him. But he'll see you, Moses, he'll see you. And through you, Pharaoh will be confronted with God. He will hear God speak through you. He will watch God act in you. Now, although the language here, I think, is very strong, the idea being conveyed is as strong as old as creation itself. You see, when God created the earth in Genesis 1, he made Adam and Eve in whose image? His image. That is, he made them his representative in the world. Made to rule in the world under God's rule. They were to be God to the world, as it were, exercising God's rule as God himself would exercise it. However, as we know, Adam and Eve failed dismally, didn't they? They didn't rule under God's rule. They chose rule of their own. But the principle was there from the beginning. And various people in the Old Testament are understood to act as God toward the world they live in. Now we Christians, we who are Christian, know that Jesus was God actually and also in function. Not only was he truly God, he lived in the world as true human, as God's representative on the earth. He functioned as God in the world. Adam and Moses are therefore prototypes of Christ. But do you know what? God's people is also us. If we are Christian, we also are God's people, are we not? We too, in many ways, function as God in the world. For, for example, some of you in the workplace or 
in life or in relationships within families. Function as God to them. They may never hear God's word directly, but they'll hear you and watch you. God has placed us in the world to be his representatives, I think. I think that's what this text says. I think Genesis 1 to 3 says it. And God has placed us to be his representatives. Many people in our world will not ever see God. They will never hear God speak to them personally, but they will see us. And through us, the people we live and work with will be confronted by God. They'll hear God speak if we are true to God. They'll watch God act. You see, in many ways, it is true to say that we are the only God that many people in our world will ever see. It's not that we're actually God. No, no, it can't be. That, no truth. There's no truth in that. Nevertheless, we'll often find ourselves in the position of representing God. And through us, God will act in the world. So as I've preached the gospel in various places around Australia, around the world, people have become Christian. I did nothing. God did. I have seen, I have seen relatives, particularly of Heathers, who are just ordinary Christians, but through whom people have been converted. You see, we are God to the communities in which we minister and live. Our friends, our family may never, may not see God or hear the real God ever, but they do see and hear us, friends, the people of God. And so we are to act and speak so that God's power and love are seen. We are to speak and act in such a way that they know there's another way a God-fearing way, a God-filled way. We, like Moses, are God to the world. That's phenomenal, isn't it? So that the world might know that there is a Lord and that there is his Son, Jesus the Christ. So let me ask you here today, are you Christian? If so, do you live like that? We need more Christians to be like the picture painted here of Christians living in the world. We need people who will represent the true and living God to our world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word that is always cutting for us, but also encouraging. Thank you for these truths from this ancient text. Father, we pray that you would always make your spirit our teacher and your glory our supreme concern for the sake of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.